Good morning, fellas. So good to see everybody today. Hope you've had a good week. I know that I have. <clears throat> that game five was something else. Let's be praying for game six. I invite you to open up your Bibles to Psalm 77. Psalm 77. Today we're going to talk about uh, trusting God. You know, that's kind of a key component to being faithful men after God's own heart, men after God's own heart, that we actually trust God. But rather than talking about trusting God in a general sense, I was going to go about it that way at first, but I decided to think about and to talk on trusting God in a specific context. Uh, what does it look like and how do we trust God when life isn't all that easy? You know, when the storms of life, when the fog of life come in and darkness settles around us, when the lights go out, how do we trust God in those moments? What does it look like to trust God when we experience things like fear, despair, and emotional and spiritual distress? How do we trust God in those moments. I know that's a little bit of a Debbie Downer on this Thursday morning, so I apologize, brothers. But I do want to talk about it for several reasons. One, generally speaking, the church does not often talk about those things when we experience that. And secondly, as men in this life, we will experience trouble. God, after all, tells us in the book of Job, in the few days that he gives us, our lives will be filled with trouble. We have, we are, or we will experience those dark things in this life. But here's the deal. In this day and age of you know, masculine Christianity, tough guy Christianity, most folks pretend like nothing phases them. And if they do experience those, those hard things, they're often approached with theological platitudes, just have more faith, or disengaged optimism, just it's going to be okay, don't worry about it. And the reality is when we approach life that way, we have a superficial spirituality. And the problem is, is when superficial spirituality is confronted with real things, with real trials, with real tribulations and real tragedy, this is what happens. It folds like a cheap rug. Two things happen. At, at, at best, we're left worse off emotionally than we were before. At worst, we're led further away from the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why so many of us, why I love the Psalms. Right, because of two things, really. God's word, particularly the Psalms, are honest with us. It does not hide us from the fact that we will experience hard things in this life. I mean, half the Psalms, you have depressed writers. But secondly, more importantly, the Psalms give us the words that we need to thrive in those situations. And they serve as a bomb to our weary souls. That's what we find in Psalm 77, when life isn't easy when you are overwhelmed, when all hope seems lost, Asaph shows us how to trust God in the dark. So let's read it together. Psalm 77, starting at verse 1. Asaph writes, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and He will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. 
You hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. I considered the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has His steadfast love forever ceased? Are His promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has He in anger shut up His compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints went unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, again, we are so grateful that you've called us here this morning because in your providence, uh, you are the one who brought us here. And Lord, for a lot of us, it's been a long week. Many of us have already experienced our fair share of troubles. Many of our loved ones are going through troubles right now. And that is why I'm so thankful for these men, for this time, and for your life-giving word. And we pray that by your spirit, your word would be a balm to our souls, that you would bless us with more and more faith, and that by your grace, you would equip each of us to be ministers to our brothers sitting around us, that we would know and be courageous enough to help each other limp to the throne of grace. We love you, God, and we pray these things in your blessed name. Amen. Several years ago, um, when I was uh, in seminary, I met a man named Carl. Um, part of my role as a pastoral intern at this church that I worked at in seminary was to shadow uh, the pastors in their various fields of ministry. And so there's this one time I was with the caring pastor, and he was going and, and visiting a bunch of homebound members. And one of those members was Carl. Now, I did all my prep work going, uh, you know, learning about Carl and his life before I went to go see him in his house. And at one point, I saw pictures and just heard his story. He was just a strapping guy. I mean, huge. He was like an offensive tackle at the University of Mississippi, Ole Miss back in the 50s. Just a muscular dude. Um, He graduated. uh, He has a great family, had a great family, um, did well for himself. People in the community and in that church loved him dearly. Kind man, faithful man. When I met him, He was dying from pancreatic cancer. And in that moment when I met him, his life was in shambles. I remember walking to his house and you could just feel the sadness. I looked into his eyes and they were filled with tears. And I spoke with him, the pastor spoke with him, I was doing mostly listening. But he was filled with anger, I remember. 
he was filled with uh, fear about his prognosis, but fear about the sins that he'd wrestled with in his youth, the, the sins that he was wrestling with as an adult. He was scared about his future. I mean, the rubber had really met the road for him, and he was struggling to trust God. He was even angry at God. Now, again, I was an intern. I had no idea what to say or do. I was in the weeds. This is well over my head, and thankfully God gave me enough sense really not to say anything. But that pastor knew what he was doing. And I'll never forget it. He got down on the floor with Carl and hugged him. And he cried with Carl. And he gave Carl the time and the space to lay out all of his fears, to lay out all of his concerns, to lay out all the things that he was angry about. And they wept together. The pastor prayed, and then Carl prayed for what seemed like hours. Then the pastor flipped open to certain passages in Scripture outlining the gospel and all of the promises of God that we in this room hold dear. Carl read them. The pastor read them. They wept. They cried. They prayed. They wept. They cried. They prayed. And I'll never forget, in the midst of that, Carl smiled. It was really as if, and I'm not kidding, I'm not blowing smoke, I'm not trying to exaggerate to make a point. I'll never forget, it looked as if the fear and the, the anger and the confusion just lifted from his shoulders. You could literally see the countenance in his face change and those tears of fear transformed into tears of joy. It was by God's grace through the ministry of that pastor that Carl found his way out of the dark. And it's that ministry that God gives us in Psalm 77. It's really a roadmap, Psalm 77, for trusting God when life isn't easy. And there's two main principles. We have a couple of subpoints, but two main principles that God teaches us on how to trust Him when the storms of this life close in. First off, we must seek God. That's not brilliant, but that's what we see in the first nine verses. We seek God. And secondly, we resolve to remember God. Two indispensable tools that God gives us to trust him in the dark. So let's look at them individually. First off, when you find yourself in the dark, seek God. This is what Asaph did in verses 1 through 9. We aren't entirely entirely sure what Asaph experienced in his life that led him to write Psalm 77. It's not clear, but I think even in that, that's a measure of grace from God because this psalm is general enough that God's people can apply it to whatever circumstances that they are going through. It's that, it's that general. It's one of those gifts that God gives us. But having said that, even though we don't know, understand what's going on on the surface, we do very, know very, very well what's going on down deep, what his main problem was. Asaph was struggling to trust God's love, care, and provision. Whatever was happening on the outside, whatever was happening with the people of God, with him, it caused him to doubt God's love and God's care and God's provision. He was in a very, very dark place. And brothers, I know that we've been in those places before. If you haven't, you will. We've been in those places. We will be in those places. But where our human inclination is either to ignore those things, to put on a brave face and pretend everything's okay, or on the opposite end of the spectrum, just slip into a spiral of self-pity. Asaph shows us how to trust God when trusting God isn't easy. And the first thing we must do is seek God and seek Him immediately. Asaph did not wait for his circumstances to right themselves. He sought God urgently. And honestly, 
When the storms of life came in with tears in his eyes, doubt in his heart, snot in his nose, weeping, he sought God earnestly, honestly, and urgently. And the first way that we're called to seek God when we're in that place is to pray. This is exactly what Asaph does in verses 1 through 5. Notice how he describes his predicament. He says that he is, well, first off, anxious. He is depressed. (laughs) He had insomnia. And his soul refused to be comforted. This is a man after God's own heart. This is one of his Bible writers, Asaph. But he was anxious, depressed, had insomnia, and his soul refused to be comforted. The guy was literally in a tunnel, a dark tunnel, and there was no light at the end of it. That's where Asaph was. I mean, he was a smart guy. He knew all of the right answers. I mean, he was thinking through his problems, but he was in a place where his emotions sabotaged him and his sleep escaped him to the point that his arms were actually tired from being stretched out on his pillow at night like a drowning man longing to be saved with no help in sight. That's where he was. The fog of life had come in and he didn't see God. And what's worse, according to Uh, in in these first five verses, he tells us that even thinking about God caused him pain. He was in a place where he didn't even want to think about God. Have you ever been there before? You're in such a place, you don't even want to think about God. Because for Asaph, he, he remembered his past experiences with God. Those sweet moments, those blessed moments, those delightful moments he had in his relationship with God. But that compared to his present circumstances, it just felt like a knife to his soul. God, I remember how great it was, but I don't see you now. Where are you? And it was like a dagger to his heart and his soul. But notice what he did not do. He didn't hide from that. He didn't pretend everything was okay because he was a man after God's own heart. What did he do? He ran to God. And he prayed fervently and urgently. He laid out all of his issues. Brothers, do you you pray like that? Do you let God know how you're feeling and where you are, even if it's not in a good place? Sometimes we don't feel like we can be honest with God. But according to Asaph, according to his word, this is really cool. Did you know God wants you to talk to him like that? That he wants you to be honest with who you are and where you are and how you're feeling. I mean, look at these first six verses. Asaph uses that first person, I, me, and my, 18 times. In six verses, he uses I, me, and my, 18 times. He only refers to God six times in these first six verses. What that tells me is Asaph was not afraid to lay out his complaints to God. I mean, at best, he's being a whiny baby. At worst, he's being irreverent. I mean, this guy is one self-focused dude, right? And most of us, if we heard someone praying like that, say, hey, bro, just take your eyes off yourself, point them towards God. But God didn't do that. Not in these first six verses. Why do I bring that up? God wants all of you. I mean, remember, God, God put this in his word. This is a part of his songbook. Israel sang this song. Imagine a worship song about our emotions, the most unpresbyterian thing ever. But God put it in his songbook. And the reason that God put it in his songbook and his word is because he wants us to know that God wants your whole person, not just your mind and not just your right answers. He wants your heart. He wants your emotions. He wants your anxieties. He wants your fears. He wants your hurts. He wants all of you. How amazing is that? I mean, can you imagine growing up with a dad who would not allow you to be honest with your feelings? Don't cry. 
Grow up. Rub dirt on it. Go talk to your mom. I'm not busy. I'm too busy for you. Leave me alone. Some of us had fathers like that. But here's the good news. Your perfect father in heaven is never like that. He wants you. And he wants the entirety of your person. So much so, in fact, in verse 4, Asaph understood that at least part of the reason that God allowed him to suffer in the way in which he was suffering was so that not only would Asaph pray, but that he would continue to pray. Here's my summary of verse 4. The reason I can't sleep, the reason my eyelids won't close is because you are keeping me praying. God purposefully gave him trouble. Why? so that he would draw near to God because God is the only one who can give rest and comfort to our weary souls. And this is how I personally have applied that. The next time that you have an anxiety-riddled night where you can't go to sleep, oftentimes we think to ourselves in those moments, something's wrong with me. Why is this happening? Why can I have more faith? You know? In those moments, don't think there's anything wrong with you. Think of them as divinely appointed rendezvous in which God is bringing you closer to his knee. Because that's what happened to Asaph. Asaph says, when those happen, when those storm clouds roll in, pray and keep praying. Do not waste your trouble, but take them to the throne of God and experience his comfort. Because that's the gift of prayer. Not that we're changing God, but rather that God is changing us and comforting us. So in these moments, we first off seek God through prayer, but secondly, we seek him through his word. This is what we see Asaph do in verses 7 through 9. This is really interesting. After praying, he sought God by laying down his doubts and putting them side by side with God's word. First off, sometimes our anxieties and our fears are well beyond us. We're a whole person. God made us mind, body, and soul, and sometimes we need the common grace of counseling. But make no mistake, the greatest gift that God gives us is his word. And that's where, that's where Asaph ran to. He took his doubts, he took his concerns and fears, and he laid them side by side with God's word. Now, if you look at these questions that he asked in verses 7 through 9, they're logical questions given the circumstances he was in. Remember, he was in a very dark place. He asked questions that most of us would ask as well. We probably have asked them before. They're logical questions. What's really interesting is, is that the answers to those questions are also logical ones. Remember, Asaph, he was a man of God's word. He knew the answers to these questions he was asking. I mean, he was a catechized person. He knew God's promises. He knew God's word. And so he asked these questions that he knew very well the answers to. So what's going on? In my summary, he's going through the Rolodex of scriptural memory verses to lay claim of the promises of God. That's what he's doing. He's reminding himself of his favorite passages. He's reminding himself of scripture memory verses so that he might claim the promises of God. Oftentimes when we go through the mess and we feel like our world has just been turned upside down, we don't quickly remember the promises of God. And that happened to Asaph. And so what does he do? He goes through the memory Rolodex of all of the promises of God. And he lays them side by side with these questions they had. So there were real questions, but there were also you know, rhetorical ones. I mean, for example... And verse 7, will the Lord spurn me and reject me forever? Asaph knew the answer for that. The answer is all throughout the Old Testament, but here's an example in 1 Samuel chapter 12. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake. Asaph knew that God's honor is tied up in not forsaking his people. He reminded himself of that. Here's another question that he had. 
Will he never again be favorable towards me? I've asked that one before. And Asaph asked that one too, but he knew the answer. Psalm 102, verse 13. You will arise and have compassion on Zion and show favor at the appointed time. Asaph knew that our time is not God's time, but God is always on time. He trusted that God was going to show up. Verse 9. Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut off his compassion towards me? Now this is the spine of the Bible, his answer. And it comes from Exodus, but my favorite version of it, it's in Psalm 103, verse 8, where the writer says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not keep his anger forever, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. Asaph, a man after God's own heart, knew that God loved his people beyond measure. He knew the answers. But he went back to God's word to remind himself of those promises. It's really interesting. Several years ago, I was, I was going through it myself, and my counselor at CPC used the, the same tactic that Asif does here. And uh, so I, I told my counselor all the things I was struggling with, the doubts and insecurities and the fears I was experiencing. And he goes, Bart, let me ask you a question. If someone were to come into your office with those same doubts and those same fears and those same insecurities, what would you do? I said, well, I would listen to them, obviously, and I would comfort them and sympathize with them, and I would eventually point them to God's word. He goes, well, why don't you do that for yourself, dummy? He didn't say that. The people at CPC are lovely people, but that was his general, that was his general attitude. He was like, Barton, do this to yourself. Apply it to yourself. Then he gave me this strategy. He goes, I want you to go home, find a spiral notebook, and I want you to write down all of your fears, every single one of them. Then right next to that column, I want you to write down those things that you are not believing about God. Then next to that column, I want you to find the corresponding promises of God in Scripture. And so the next time you experience those fears, you can grab a hold of those promises of God. And I've done that ever since. It does not mean that I'm not still fearful or experience anxiety, but I have that Rolodex of God's promises that I can go to when I experience fear and doubt. That's one of the greatest tools I know of seeking God in the dark. I love this section of Scripture in verses 7 through 9 because I learned at least three things that are comforting to my soul. Hopefully they're comforting to you. First off, I'm reminded that God is not phased um, with our struggles about him. I mean, Asaph asked some extremely serious questions here, almost accusatorily. But there's no hint of God rebuking him. And what that tells me is that whatever I have, whatever you have, whatever's on your plate, whatever you're going through, God can handle it. He is bigger than your problems, and he is so loving that he will invite you to himself wherever you are. God can handle your mess. He's not scared of it. He invites you to him. So bring it to him. Secondly, it reminds me too that I do not have to be, and you don't have to be, afraid of doubts. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. The opposite of faith is unbelief. Doubt's different than that. As Christians, of course we're going to experience doubt in this life. We have weak faith as as frail people. I mean, we're we're not pulling the wool over God's eyes. He knows how weak our faith can be. So there's a way for us weak faith Christians to deal with our doubts believingly. And it starts with a confession. God, my ways are not your ways. 
My thoughts are not your thoughts. I believe, but help my unbelief. That's straight from God's word. And after we make that confession, this is what we do. We round up our doubts, and we go to God's word, and that will enable us to fill our quiver with the promises of God. Tim Keller actually says that's one of the greatest blessings of having doubts. Because as a believer, it forces you to go to God's word to find the answers. And you can fill your quiver with those promises, not only for yourself, but also for the brothers sitting next to you for the next time they experience those same doubts. So we don't have to be afraid of them. Thirdly, it reminds me of the blessing of word ministry. I don't know about you, but oftentimes when I go through the ringer, the last place I go to is God's word sometimes. I mean, first off, I try to fix it myself, even though it's beyond me. Then I go to other people, and sometimes, unfortunately, I go to my false idols and false saviors. Oftentimes, the last place we go to is God's word, right? Do you experience that? But remember Christ. This is a study about being men after God's own heart. Let's just think about the perfect man, Jesus, who, by the way, is often described as the man of sorrows, which tells us that Jesus saw and experienced some stuff. Think about the two worst moments in his life, when he was in the desert being tempted by Satan himself and when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And those two moments of despair and sorrow, what does Christ do? He quotes Scripture. He doesn't look to himself. He looked to the promises of God. He stored them in his heart. And in those moments of distress, he just poured them out. He he repeated these promises of God that he stored in his heart. And brothers, are we above our Savior? Of course not. And therefore, we must do that same thing. Take seriously word ministry, for man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So so here's Asaph. He is saying, God, there's, there's things that I'm going through that are just beyond me right now. I can't deal with them. I don't even see where you are. I cannot see your providential hand here. I'm not really experiencing your nearness. Things are not even adding up to what's going on in my life, to what I know about you. But this is what I am going to do. I'm going to tether myself to what I do know about you as you have revealed yourself to me in your word. There's things that he did not understand that were going on. So what did he do? He tethers himself to God's self-revelation in the word. And brothers, that's what we must do. Being a faithful man after God's own heart does not mean that we will not experience despair and spiritual darkness and doubts in this life. Of course we will. But what it does mean is is that we run to God when we do experience those things. So Asaph, he, he gives us the first stop on this roadmap of finding our way out of the dark. Seek God. Seek him through prayer. Seek him through his word and lay claim to the promises of God. Now secondly, the last stop it's going to be a few subpoints, but the last stop in Psalm 77 is to resolve to remember God. Verses 10 through 20. One of my favorite scholars of all time is a guy named Martin Lloyd Jones. Have you all read him before? I think we've uh, encouraged you to read some of his commentaries through previous studies. Martin Lloyd Jones, I love him. And one of the reasons I love him is because the guy experienced a lot of hardships in life. He struggled with doubt, he struggled with anxiety most of his career. And one of my favorite quotes of his from his self-reflection is that the chief cause of spiritual despair is when we spend time, too much time, listening to our hearts and not enough time talking to it. The chief cause for spiritual despair is we spend too much time listening to our hearts and not enough time talking to it. And that's exactly what Asaph started to do in verses 10 through 12. Look there in verses 10 through 12. For the previous nine verses, even though Asaph did the right thing of being honest with his emotions, honest with where he was with God, 
he was still spiraling into this emotional despair, right? Because he was focusing too much on his circumstances and his subjective experiences, and he was interpreting God through those things. So starting in verse 10, he makes the conscious effort, the deliberate action, the volition of the will to start talking to his heart. All right, so he takes his mind off himself. God, here's where I am. This is what I'm feeling like. But then starting in verse 10, he goes, I'm going to start talking in my heart now. And this is what he says. I will appeal to the years of the right hand of God. I will remember your deeds. I will remember your wonders. Now, scholars say that those phrases, the right hand of God, deeds, and wonders, that's referring to who God is and what he has done in rescuing and preserving his people. So what Asaph is saying in verses 10 through 12 is, God, I've been focusing on myself, but I'm not going to do that any longer. I'm going to remember what I know is true about you, who you are, and what you have done. Right? So this is the ultimate strategy that Asaph, that God through Asaph, gives us for trusting him. When the storm clouds come in, remember who God is and what he has done in the past, because this is what's going to happen. It's going to produce an unwavering hope for the future and therefore a defiant faith in the present. When we remember who God is and what he has done in the past, that will produce for us an unwavering hope for the future and a defiant faith in the present. Now, there's two things we're called to remember. First off, we remember who God is. If you look at verses 11 through 15, the psalmist works over and over to remember and to reflect on who God is, his nature and his character. Ligon Duncan, a pastor in the PCA that I really like, says that in this, uh, in this section, verses 11 through 15, Asaph is remembering the revelation of God in the past in order to experientially know God in the present. So again, remember where Asaph is. The fog of life has come in. He really can't see God's providential hand. He's not really experiencing the warms and fuzzies in his relationship with the Lord. So what does he do? He remembers who God is in the past, what God has done in the past, so that he can experientially know God in that present foggy season. And the main thing that he remembers about who God is, is this, verse 13. There's no one like our God. There's lots of other things he could dwell on, but he remembered in verse 13, there is no one like our God, which means whatever the trial, whatever the doubt, whatever the whisper of Satan puts into our ear, he remembered that God is holy. Which among other things means that he cannot be untrue to his name. God cannot be untrue to his character. He cannot be untrue to his promises of redemption. Life happens. We change. Our circumstances change. But the good news is, brothers, God never changes. God is immutable. And so right here, Asaph turns from his present circumstances and he fixates on God himself. He meditates until he believes. He thinks until he knows. And what does he know? God is good and he is mighty to save. And that's just who he is in his character and nature. So in his present distress, he, he had, with a volition of will, he decided that there is no future of locking himself into his present circumstances. So he locked himself into what he knows to be true about God, that God is holy and that he is committed to the good of his people. So first off, he remembered who God is. Secondly, he remembers what God does in verses 15 through 20. This is my favorite part. Abraham, or not Abraham, Asaph resolved to remember God and the things that God is about and the things that God does, right? And the main thing that he remembered about God, according to verses 15 through 20, is that God is in the business of rescuing his people. And not just the cream of the crop. I mean, notice that he mentions Jacob, 
I am so glad he mentions Jacob. Because you remember who Jacob was in our Genesis study. Jacob was a smarmy little coward. I mean, he was like the worst. I mean, <laughs> he is not a model, <laughs> right? but he is an example. God rescued Jacob. He rescued the children of Jacob. And that is good news to me because, brothers, I am often a miserable little coward. Just like Jacob. But Asaph remembered that God is in the business of rescuing Jacob's. And the main thing that he remembered about God's acts of deliverance was the premier act of God's deliverance in the Old Testament, the Exodus account. If you look at verse 15, when Asaph writes, with your great arm you redeemed your people. He's referencing the Exodus account. You delivered your people from slavery, O God. The sea itself was afraid of you. You shepherded your people through the storms of life. So Asaph, he didn't understand his present circumstances, so he looked back at that moment in redemptive history and concluded that if God was faithful to us then, he will most certainly be faithful to us now. That's the strategy. By remembering who God is and what he has done for us in the past, that produces hope for the future and a defiant faith in the present. Friends, I have no idea most of the time why God allows us to experience the suffering that we do. I have a lot of friends and a lot of family who are suffering right now. I'm suffering too. I'm sure you are as well. And I, I don't always know why God allows us to experience the things that we do. I mean, it's true. God works in mysterious ways. We know that. But the point we often forget, the point we must remember that, brothers, God is always working. And he's always working on the good of his people. So, for example, Asaph here, he cries out to God because he saw no hope. But he remembered that Israel was once in that spot too. They were once on the shores of the Red Sea with the Egyptian army closing in. Trained soldiers with chariots and horses and swords and spears. And here are God's people on the shoreline. How are they going to get through this? And they start wailing. Moses himself wavered. But do you remember what happened next? But God. This is what God said to Moses. Why are you crying, Moses? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward, for I am with you. I will make a way for you. I will remember you. I will redeem you. Brothers, but God. That is what Asaph remembered. But God. When the storms come in, remember, but God. When all hope seems lost, remember, but God. God. When Satan tempts you to despair, remember, but God. Asaph remember that if God was present with his people in the storms of life, he'll be faithful to him now. That is the strategy that God has given Israel to find its way out of the dark, and that is the strategy that God gives us too. But brothers, do you have any idea how much better we have it in this moment of redemptive history? Because the greatest act of God's deliverance is no longer the Exodus account. The greatest act of God's deliverance, the, the premier act of his love and his faithfulness and his care and concern for you is the greater Exodus account. It is the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus has delivered us from the greater slavery. Jesus has already quieted the only storm that could ever possibly truly destroy us. And how does he do that? Look at verse 20. Verse 20, he refers to Aaron. Aaron, you remember, gives the famous benediction that most of your pastors repeat every single Sunday morning. The, the benediction that says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. 
Brothers, do you know why we can believe that? Do you know why we can hope in that and say it with conviction? It's because Jesus willingly endured the opposite of that for you. The opposite of that benediction says, the Lord curse you and abandon you. The Lord turn his face from you and remove all of his grace from you. The Lord shun you and take from you all peace. In love, Jesus experienced that on the cross so that in him you and I might never experience it ever. And so the point is, brothers, when verses 7 through 9, those doubts come knocking on your heart and knocking on your mind and causing you despair, remember, but Christ. And if he was faithful to you at the cross, he will most certainly be faithful to you now. This was Paul's point in Romans 8. This is Romans 8, by the way, the end of Romans 8 is the New Testament version of Psalm 77, verses 7 through 9. When Paul writes, What then shall I say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son for us in the past, but gave himself up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to, uh, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? These are the same questions that that psalmist was writing in Psalm 77. Paul writes, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, and all of these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, no height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. But Jesus. Remember, when he was faithful to you at the cross, he'll most certainly be faithful to you now. This is the strategy that God gives us in his grace, but brothers, that's not all that God gives us in his grace. This is amazing. What God also does is give us people like Moses and Aaron and the people sitting around your table to help us when our faith is weak. In verse 20, that's what Asaph gives thanks to God for. That God in his grace put men in his life to hold our hands, to walk with us through the storms of life, to help us believe when we can't believe on our own. How much of a grace it is that you have friends in this room who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. There are so many moments in my life that I know that I would not have survived if it wasn't for the grace of the men that God put in my life. That allowed me to be vulnerable with them. That allowed me to express my pains and my fears. That prayed with me. That reminded me of but Jesus. How do we trust God in the dark? Pray to him. Abide in his word. And cling to the faithful brothers around you. That's what my friend Carl did. Carl died two weeks after I met him. And I just met him for that afternoon. It was 16 years ago. But I will never forget the joy I experienced by seeing the joy in his life. And the reason that he had joy was because of what Asaph did. He sought God. He prayed to God. He studied God's word. And he clung to his friend in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he remembered what Asaph teaches us. Brothers, God is always good. He is always with us, even when we don't see him. 
He is always working. He is always loving. And ultimately, one day, he will deliver us. Trust God. Pray to him. Seek him through his word and cling to the brothers around you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you deliver and rescue Jacob's and those of us with weak faith. Lord God, we thank you for the gospel, which tells us we're more sinful than we ever thought, but more loved in Jesus than we ever dared to hope. We thank you for the gift of prayer and your word, those means of grace which seal to our consciences that all of the promises of the gospel are true. And we're so thankful for the men in this room, this group of brothers that can help us believe when we have trouble. We love you, O God, and we pray these things in your blessed name. Amen.